Welcome to the Financial Liberty Podcast. Until you wake up from the American dream, financial uncertainty will be your American reality. Join Sam Legaspi and Ko Sukamoto and their guests as they explore how you can attain financial liberty by uncovering truths that have been kept secret for decades. Have you ever played a game and didn't know the rules? How can you ever win? Learn the rules to the game and in turn, learn how to win. Now, on to the show. Hello and welcome to the Financial Liberty Project with Sam Legaspi and Ko Sukamoto. I don't know what we're talking about today, so I'm going to hand it over to the gentleman. Guys, what are we talking about? Oh, what we're going to be talking about is <laughs> the six things that should make you go, hmm, not necessarily the things that make you go, hmm, but the six things that should, that will make you go, hmm, when it comes to building a portfolio or just investing or just retirement planning, just anything and everything out there. And again, you're listening to Sam and Coz, and here we are back with some more knowledge bombs for you guys out there. And welcome to the most exciting podcast in radio or in podcast history. Yeah, we're used to saying radio. But you know, before that, Coz, uh, we actually got a message and I wanted to share this message with you. And inside this message from Greg, Greg from Cathedral City, sorry for butchering your name. It's really difficult to say. Greg from Cathedral City. Actually, I was reading this, Coz, and there's quite a few quite a few things that we can actually talk about, even though I think there's just really one question behind it. So Greg says he's 62 years old and will be looking to leave his company in the next six months. He says, I've got five kids, two from a previous marriage. And they are all out of the house except for one who I am putting through school. She has two more years. I heard that you guys want to make sure that I have a financial plan in place. But what exactly does a financial plan include? Is it basically a budget? Thank you. Well, Greg, no, it's not necessarily just basically a budget, even though a budget can be part of a plan, an overall plan for you. But when it comes to an overall plan, when it comes to your retirement, there's really so many plans inside the plan. So it's a financial roadmap you want to try to get and that we're advocates of. is just an entire financial roadmap. We liken it to if you were to go to a trip somewhere, if you were to go to Hawaii. So we, we know that there is a plan to go to Hawaii. So there's fundage. There is fundage meaning funds, money. We're trying to figure out how to get there, of course, what airline we're going to be utilizing to get there. And then once we get there, there's other plans. We just don't arrive at the airport. What are the other plans? Well, we got to get a car. And once we get the car, we got to get to our place. And once we get to our place, do we just hang out in the hotel all day long or do we start sightseeing? And if we're sightseeing and we're in Hawaii, there's so many things to do with such limited time. So there are plans inside plans inside plans. And so when it comes to an entire financial roadmap, you're going to have all these mini plans inside that. And inside these mini plans, you have inside the financial roadmap, you have uh, the mini plans such as retirement planning, income planning, estate planning, social security planning, elderly planning, uh, which is long-term care, things of that nature. And so there's all these little plans that go into play. So when we do talk about a financial plan, which we consider a financial roadmap, it isn't just basically a budget. No, Greg, it's actually more involved in that. There's so many aspects and not every single mini plan that I've just mentioned is incorporated inside that financial roadmap because there's so many things that go on that to throw all this at you is like throwing a Donnelly directory at you. So much information can cause, you know, what a lot of people say, paralysis uh, by analysis, over analysis. So 
we take the most important things to you and we just build upon that and build upon that. And it can actually take about maybe an entire three, four, five, six months, maybe five years to actually incorporate every single part of the financial roadmap and the mini plans that are inside that. I hope that answers your question. But in reading this, Coase, in reading this, and I think I'm going to go ahead and send it on over to you after I mention this. He indicated, Greg, you indicated that you've got five kids. You're looking to retire in about six months, you said. He's got about five kids, two from a previous marriage. Now, I know that that uh, this has come across By the way, a few times. That made me go, hmm. That was a hmm, hmm moment for me. All right. Yeah. You mentioned there was some there's a marriage or previous marriage and kids from a from two different marriages. It yeah. was a hmm moment for me. Well, I'm I'm gonna go ahead and let you go off that hmm moment because I think you're feeding off exactly from what I read here. So go ahead and uh, and, All and right. take it. Yeah. So the hmm moment is triggered by, really, it's just our collective experience, Sam, working with so many different people. There's a fair share of the population that we've worked with that have come from a divorced situation. It seems to keep repeating where we will meet a person who has been divorced for a period of time. Sometimes it's it's as long as 30 years, and they operate on a presumption that they are in complete and full understanding of what the agreement was from their previous marriage as the divorce. And they will continue to operate as a worker or as a business owner, thinking that they have a complete and clear understanding of how much of their retirement they get to keep and how much of it goes to an ex-spouse. And lo and behold, 30 years goes by or however many years is, is applicable in that person's case. They have a uh, a very, very rude awakening. Uh, there's actually a stronger term I'd like to use to express that, but that would not be appropriate in a podcast or on the air or in a radio show or for that matter, any anywhere in public. But um, it's a very, very uh, shocking moment of truth that becomes front and f- just completely in the face of the person who's falsely operated under an understanding for 20, 30 years, only to find out in a matter of one to two minutes that a significant portion of their retirement assets actually belongs to somebody else in a ratio and a proportion that was completely unexpected. So the lesson learned is if you are in a divorce situation, in this case, it would be Greg, it would behoove Greg to experience the hmm moment and respond to it by calling their retirement administrator and find out what the situation is, who has claims to his or her retirement assets. In this case, it's Greg, as I said. Greg, you need to go and make some phone calls and find out who's got claims. Does your ex have claims? If so, how much? What percentage? And there's a thing called a quadro. It's a QDRO. It's Qualified Domestic Relationship Order. It's a legal document. It's typically filed by the ex-spouse's attorney, and it goes to the retirement administrator, and they have to follow those directions. And unless you have an understanding of what that quadro says, you may be in for the shock of your life. So that's my takeaway on that, Sam. Yeah, you may be in for the shock of your life because uh, it's happened many, many, many times. And you're right, Coz, because as soon as I read that part, he had one question basically for us in his message, but in there, there was that nugget in there. And and I know I know that you've had some experience recently. As a matter of fact, I was right there when, when things were happening. And there's nothing worse than to be this close to retiring. He's 62 years old. And in this, uh, Greg, you're 62. 
that you got six months to go. And if you don't know, in fact, if you have no idea what is going on with regards to the money that you have and how long ago that divorce was. So for instance, let's just say, because he was only married for about two years. If he was only married for two years and or three years, whatever it might be, and that was over 30 years ago, he could be in for a rude awakening. And it's one of those holy crap moments that not only do you have to face yourself, but you've got to also face your current spouse and say, hey, honey, um, we have a little bit of a change of plan. You know, we wanted to go ahead and stay here in California, but there's a chance that we may not be able to afford it anymore because uh, we may not have as much money as we thought we were going to have. So these are things that you definitely don't want to necessarily find out on your retirement day. You want, definitely want to go ahead and do that. So for all you listeners out there, if you've been part of a marriage and you have that marriage and it was maybe, you know, 10, 15, 20 years ago and you don't have the paperwork of that marriage anymore, run on over to your local court and request a copy of your quadro, request a copy of the paperwork, the dissolution of marriage, everything, and try to figure it out yourself and see if there's anything in there that needs to be handled before something transpires with regards to your company and yourself and you decide to go ahead and take off. And- right. I mean, we can extend this this example, Sam, another an hour and a half, and we would not run out of things to talk about. But there was also, in Greg's situation, there's kids from a previous marriage. So beneficiaries are things that need to be looked at. There's just so many more things that we can talk about. But That's what I'm saying. This is the thing, Scott. Greg, I got to tell you, there's a lot of little nuggets here, a lot of little nuggets. But but it can be overwhelming, and that's okay. That's a natural human response, right, to feel overwhelmed. But it doesn't have to be that overwhelming. It can, it's just breaking it down into all the little pieces and methodically going through and, and handling each of them. You've got plenty of time. You just have to get the process going. But to wait until the last minute, that is definitely a uh, overwhelming situation. So start early, get the planning going down now. Yep, yep, yep. So, hey, let's go back to the six things that should and will make you go, hmm. So um, I like to go ahead and say, you know, number one, this is actually pretty interesting. You know, plan on using 100 years when creating your financial plan. And uh, you know what I mean by that is you plan on using 100 years. When I first got in the industry years and years ago, back in 1993, we were utilizing retirement analysis. You know, we had these really cool, tricky software programs inside those big old green screens of a monitor that, that weighed about 200 pounds. And it was uh, revolutionary at the time. And, and you just plug in the name and all this information, and it spits out this 100 page document that shows what you should do. And the interesting part was that these analyses were all based off of individuals that are around 82, 83 years old, as far as their life expectancy was. So people back then, close to 30 years ago, people were expected to live to 82 to 85. And then over the years, we had to adjust those numbers to about 90, 95, to the point where you want to start utilizing the number 100. There's more people turning 100. And I'm not just talking about six people to 12 people. I'm talking about thousands of people in the United States that are going from 99 to 100 years old because of the advancement in modern medicine that you got to start planning for 100. I think a good rule of thumb is that, you know, what we'd like to do is we'd like to ask a person how old their parents were. And so if someone said my parents were around, call it, you know, 85 when they passed away, a good rule of thumb is to just add 10 more years. So you add 10 more years, so that's going to be you. So 95. Or if they were 90, add another 10, that's going to be 100. You have a parent that's 101, 102, add 
At another 10 years of that, you're looking at about 110 years old. And again, it's because of the advancement in modern medicine. So I'm starting to see people, they're still utilizing their mortality levels, the expectancy, life expectancy rates in their financial plans at 85, 90. Why is this so important? This is so important because one of the biggest fears out there is running out of money while you're still alive. And you got to understand that your plan has to assume that you're going to be living past 100 or at least to 100 years old. So if you're 60 years old, that's another 40 years. You got to make sure that your money is going to last you for another 40 years at the very least. It's something which, again, a lot of poor planning is created because they just don't input the appropriate data. There are so many stories I hear where an elder person has been living in like an assisted living home. And for decades, they had plenty of money to afford it. But then what happened was now they're in their mid to late 90s and they've outlived what their plan was. And now they're down to the last dollar. And so, you, do you know, Sam, what these homes do? They will evict these people. They're out and, and they get forced out. Now, where do these people go? I don't know. I actually, I don't know where they go. They have to go somewhere. And you know what? You think that family members want to be taking on the responsibility of caring for them? I think there's a lot of good kids out there that will, but you know what? There's a lot of actually good kids that won't. <laughs> so yeah, it's, uh, it's, yeah. it's an epidemic. It's the great American retirement crisis. It definitely is. Oh, yeah. It's one of the great American retirement crises that we talk about, we discuss and are on our road tour. And unfortunately, it's just one of those scenarios. There's a solution. There's a solution. There's several solutions. However, a lot of times people just don't necessarily want to take a look at their own mortality. And as a result, that particular solution goes by the wayside up into the point where they need it. And when they need it, that's when the solution becomes unaffordable. Yeah, there's, there's a solution to a lot of these things, folks. And it's just really understanding, you know, in the, like in, in this case, you know, number one, planning on using 100 years. So if you are putting together a financial roadmap, uh, you want to put your life expectancy at 100. And I don't care if you say, you know what? I don't know, man, because my parents lived to 75. So I don't expect to live past 75 years old. My uncle, he passed at 72. My aunt passed at 79. Again, with the advancement in modern medicine, let's think about this. You know, I mean, I, I, I'm here in, in, in California and there, there's no smoking over here, you know? So uh, there, you got people that are eating healthier, people that understand, you know, uh, how to hydrate their, their, their bodies, not necessarily taking in the sugars. I mean, a lot of the, the information that, that we know today that wasn't necessarily applied before, there's people that, that are exercising on a, on a more regular basis. There's companies that are embracing the exercising. They're embracing a better fit. Uh, workforce, uh, you're you're looking at a situation where you know this this group this this number of people the cent- I think they call them the centurions, um, kind of like that American Express centurion card. The people that are turning a hundred, there's thousands and thousands and thousands of them, and there's soon going to be about I think ten to fifteen thousand centurions every single day because just again like we discussed. Things are just getting better for them. And the last thing you want to do is retire at 65 and run out of money at 85 or 90. That's no good. No good. No bueno. Number two. Number two, when it comes to six things that should make you and will make you go, hmm, Mm -hmm. is should you keep your investment turnover to a minimum? Now, a lot of people say, hmm, should I care? (laughs) What does that even mean? Yeah, right. exactly. Well, think, what do you mean by that, Sam? Well, you know, okay. So here's here's something that's really interesting. So, you know, let's just take, for example, cars if, or, or houses. If you like to keep buying and selling a, a house, and I'm going to go really extreme here. Let's say you buy and sell a house 20 times in one month. Well, that's 20 times in one month. You've exchanged hands on, on a piece of real estate, but understand something. 
that you've also paid commissions, depending on what side you are on, the buyer or the seller side, but you paid commission 20 times. So that is called turnover. Okay. And, and when it comes to investing, there is what's called turnover as well. And turnover is when you have a portfolio of stocks. And let's just say you have $100,000 and you have 100 stocks. And the following year, those 100 stocks don't resemble the 100 stocks that you had a year ago. As a matter of fact, they're completely different. You just basically turned your entire portfolio over 100%. So the one thing that that we see people do is there's a lot of turnover. You want to keep turnover to a minimum because of fees. Fees that can ultimately eat into your returns and be that roadblock that stops you from generating the return that you need in retirement to make sure that you have money left over or still available when you're 100 years old. Right. And that turnover, the higher it is, probably, as we said in our last podcast, um, it may be a symptom of an investor experiencing excitement in, in trying to make money grow. And as we said then, that um, if, if uh, growing money becomes an exciting experience, it may be problematic. It may be uh, that um, you know, you're, you're doing something's wrong. So again, excitement is generally not a very good thing to be experiencing when you're trying to grow your money. Uh, and so we, we, we always like to say, hey, if you're growing money and it feels like you're watching paint come off a barn in Iowa, you may be doing something right. <laughs> so right. Turnover, right. high turnover yeah. could, be, could be a bad sign. And it, it can be a bad sign because turnover has been shown to correlate with poor investment performance. So, um, you know, that's uh, unless you unless you are an expert in this field, unless you you actually trade for a living and you're a portfolio manager, and you love doing that, then uh, turnover is going to be part of your repertoire. But if you're like most individuals that are looking to just live a low key life and enjoy life, then uh, you're definitely not necessarily going to want to have a tremendous amount of turnover. Like I said, turnover, if you had in one month, if you turned over 20 pieces of real estate imagine the hectic, the, the, the life that you would live, the drama filled, it would be a nightmare. So basically almost the same thing. So the other thing when it comes to the six things that should make you and will make you go, Hmm, mm -hmm. hmm should I keep my costs mm. low? I don't know. Cause should you pay more? I don't think that would be a good idea, but you know what? <laughs> a lot of people seem to think it is. But you know, here's here's the thing. I think here, should you keep your costs low? I think that's pretty much a, a loaded question because the answer is always going to be absolutely. But how many vehicles that are out there hmm. have hidden fees that prevent you, that they they masquerade around low fees, but they prevent you in the form of hidden fees from keeping the costs low? There's a lot. There's a lot, oh, yeah. and we're not advocates of, of variable annuities. Where you know we like we we definitely like the uh, the other type of uh, annuity, um, uh, but it does have its caveats as well as far as growth is concerned. We're talking about fixed indexed annuities, but when it comes to variable annuities, not only do they have high fees, but you can also lose your money there too. So it's a no bueno type situation. So variable annuities, we we uh, we definitely don't necessarily like to like and there's, to entertain those. Right, and there's many other types of products out there that have fees, and uh, you know we're not going to dissect that here. But um, you're probably living in a bunch of them. Oh, well, you mean four hundred one ks? Yeah, if you're working for a company, <laughs> believe me. Yes. Yeah, there's no, hey man, you know what? 
I, I, I get it. That's going to be another show, but there's no, there's no reason why we shouldn't uh, talk a little bit about those because there's a lot of, of fees. And, and I guess we can talk about a few things because most mutual funds or most 401ks have mutual funds inside it. And inside the mutual funds, there's what's called expense ratios. And these expense ratios are the fees that typically, you know, these, these money managers get. But what's not necessarily disclosed is that these money managers, they do a lot of turnover. As a matter of fact, what they do in a mutual fund is they – you buy a mutual fund because it's actively monitored. It's active. It's an active form of investing in that there is a money manager. There's a dude at the helm. And this dude is supposed to make good decisions. And he's supposed to be a very good stock picker, a very good stock trader. And he's supposed to know better than each and every single one of us and what we should do with regards to choosing what kind of company we should own in that portfolio. As a result, he does a lot of buying and selling. And when it comes to a lot of this buying and selling, we do what's called turnover. So they do turnover. They, they turn that portfolio over. And guess what, Coase? So many times we've seen turnover ratios of about 150, 200, 300%. We see, and, and here's the thing, it's okay if it's $100,000 and they turn it over twice, okay. But if you've got a $15 billion mutual fund, that thing's got turned over. They just basically flipped that thing three times. You know, so you've got a fifteen billion dollar mutual fund, and they flipped it for you know forty five billion to the tune of forty five billion, or yeah, forty five billion in transactions. Worth. Yeah, oh, in trans- exactly. In transactions, serious fees being generated, and who do those fees go to? They well, don't go the to money the manager. Uh, yeah, they don't. They don't go to you. No, so. Mr. Money Manager, he goes, and eh, it's so. kind of like a law firm, guys. So for anyone <laughs> listening, it's kind of like a law firm. <laughs> All right, All right. And you know, not pick a fight with an attorney now. <laughs> no, but you know it's it's pretty standard. It's pretty standard if you put a retainer down, and and uh, that retainer is for that attorney's service. Because if they fax something for you, if they email something for you, if they request something for the courts from the courts for you, then that's going to be part that eats into your retainer. So what ends up happening is that you know all these little ancillary things start adding up and start adding up, and then before you know it, ka-ching, you're not only ka-ching. paying for your attorney's monthly, but you're also paying for Every nook and cranny, that stamp that cost you X amount of money to go ahead and mail out a, a you know a, a Manila package, that's going to cost you. So when it comes to managing money, these money managers, they don't assume the fees when it comes to the buying and selling. They make the choices to buy and sell, but they don't necessarily assume those fees. Those assume those those fees are assumed by the shareholder. So. That's just one of the fees, but also right, and there are alternatives to that, right? So if you want yeah, to go low it, cost, there are some solutions, and so yeah, I, there's a solution to everything. <laughs> but but the thing is, is that there's also other fees. There's administrative fees, and depending on what kind of 401k you have, if you have a variable annuity or you've got some type of insurance product inside the uh, inside the portfolio, there could be mortality fees. So there's a lot of types of fees, and you could be feed to death, and you are under the impression that there are no fees, or if there's a fee, it's only one percent. But then you find out, and we've experienced this, you find out that you could be paying anywhere between six, seven, eight, nine percent. So yeah. Keep your costs low. Six things that should and will make you go, hmm. Mm-hmm. Hmm. Keep your costs low. Right. right. So, number four. Number four. Here's something really, really cool I like to talk about. Never overpay for an asset. All right. Never That's over- common sense. Don't overpay for a car or a refrigerator. Yeah. Yeah, but why is this in there? Because, you know, I'll be like, hmm. Because I okay, why is it in there? It. These guys are putting it in for a reason. Yeah, because it happens. <laughs> you know, th- th- there's no way around it. I mean, price is going to be paramount to the returns that you, you ultimately earn, right? Like in real estate, it's all a function of location. You make your money on real estate when you buy it. 
You know, so if you bought a piece of real estate many, many, many years ago, that's when you made your money. And, and so we see constantly, you know, people that are working for particular companies and they have company stock and um, their company stock has gone through the roof and potentially, you know, by the way, it could continue to keep going through the roof. But uh, for the most part, I, are they are they actually pay, overpaying for that particular asset? Because we've seen nightmares in the past where they have indeed paid and overpaid for those particular assets. And when those asset classes or the, those those assets actually kind of uh, correct and come back to equilibrium, you got a lot of people that aren't very happy. So, you know, there's there's a lot of real world examples of uh, making sure that you don't necessarily overpay for for an asset but i think that's pretty common sense but again we see it often right and so there's the opposite example um where i think you might remember the gentleman that that we had spoken to sam but he um he works for a company he's in aerospace and he um, participates in the company employee stock option program and they have a program where um, as an employee he can purchase company stock and it's always bought at i think it was a 15 percent discount so whatever the market was, I think that because they they work there, they're able to purchase the same shares the public buys, but he gets it at a, at a 15% discount. And um, I think the program allowed him that after a certain number of days that he could go ahead and sell it. <laughs> That's what he was doing, basically buying at a discount and as quickly as he could selling it. And in general, he was yielding a pretty darn good return on a consistent basis. And that's an, that's a perfect example of what what he did opposite to what we say is a hum moment, and that's uh, you know the hum moment is when you buy something that's overpriced. He was buying something that was underpriced, right? Pretty wise move on his part, I would say. Well, you know, and that's what what creates the overpriced situation is that um, you know you have a bunch of employees buying stock at a lower price, and it fuels because there's a lot more there's a lot more selling. Uh, well, there's a lot more buying than there is selling, and that drives the, the the price up. And what ends up happening is that it continues to keep fueling it, and the shareholder uh, the, the demand for shareholder value keeps going higher and higher and higher and higher because you have all these employees that own a stock 15 at a 15% discount. So they're expecting this thing to go higher and it does go higher. And before you know it, it creates an overvalued situation. So even though you're buying a stock that's 15%, that's at a 15% discount to current market values, current market values, it doesn't necessarily mean that you're buying a asset class that is of value. You could very well be buying into a overpriced asset, even at a, at a slight discount to today's prices. You know what I'm saying? So it's kind of like you, you, if you bought a, a Mercedes Benz for $300,000, yeah, you got a 15% discount on it. But let's face it, it's still expensive, <laughs> it's still, man. Yeah, it's still expensive. <laughs> that's that's a very good point, Sam. <laughs> you know, you know. I mean, so gotta, I mean, that, that's that's one thing. You don't want to necessarily stabby. pay for an asset. Yeah, you you, you just got to know what you're doing. <laughs> sometimes it's right. not that easy to do, and sometimes it is. Yeah, 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 yeah. It happens all the time. It happens all the time. So, you know, moving along, you know, when it comes to the six things that should make you and will make you go. Hmm. Is and we we talked about a little bit. Is you definitely don't want to always rely on a single investment, just a stock. And um, you know, back in the day, and it still is apparent today. You have people that just own company stock, and uh, you know, we know a lot of people that owned one particular company stock last year, and uh, the market was down. You know, about seven percent last year. 
And this company stock was down over 21, 22%. I thought they were down even more than that, but we won't mention the name of the company, but. Yeah, we're talking about a different one. <laughs> there's one There's one we can mention from many years ago, and that was Enron. Enron. Remember? Yeah. These, these people that worked for Enron, they had all of the retirement assets in that company. Yeah. And uh, they were completely, um, you know, they, they had relied on that company for 100% of their future retirement. And they got wiped out. And they got wiped out. Right, right. right. I mean, they they were buying into a bubble. And uh, that bubble was was continuing to go higher. And it was fun. And a lot of people were making money. And, and a lot of people cashed out or not cashed out. But they borrowed against their 401k plan so that they could go you know, travel and buy that his and her BMW and do all these things and fix up their home and do all these great things. And unfortunately, what happened was that uh, that that one thing, that one investment you know that single holding really, uh, really hurt them when when things went uh, went haywire. So yeah, uh, you know, I mean, relying on a single investment, we see it more often than not because a lot of people are just tied into the company that they work at. They have so much pride in where they're working, and 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 I get it. You know, love your wife, love your kids, love your dog, but don't love your company, don't love your stock. You know, those are you the know, things that we want to tell it's, you. It's interesting that. Um, so there's a lot of people that remember what happened with Enron, and there were other companies that went through the same thing. Like I think it was WorldCom, there was Tyco, and um, and people got hurt by it. But these these same generation of people, <laughs> sadly, haven't learned their lesson because they're still doing the same thing again. And um, you know, Sam, you and I, we've seen we've we've met many of people who have all of their retirement assets um, tied up with the company that they work for, and um, you know, it's just you know you can bring that that wisdom to them but sometimes they they're just not ready to accept it but that's just part of the human nature side yeah and sometimes if you're like me and you um you had that one big massive gain in one particular stock when you're much younger you were allowed to make that mistake because you were younger and I'm happy I made that mistake when I was younger because I just put all my money on one horse and yeah, it was uh, it was painful. It was painful, but it was fun on the way up. <laughs> <laughs> it's always fun on the way up. It's always fun on the way always up. Always fun on the way up. So you know, the other part too is uh, in six things that should make you and will make you go. Hmm, is you want to make sure that you're in, that that you structure you structure your your portfolio your investments in a tax efficient manner. I think you know we've done several podcasts on this but more and more it's interesting it's just not catching wind it's just you know it's it's lying dead and that uh, people just don't understand you know tax efficiency and and the the value in making sure you uh, utilize one particular vehicle for your money versus another vehicle. And uh, unfortunately, I think we just got to continue to keep saying it and saying it and saying it and saying it and repeating it and repeating it so that it starts ingraining into people's minds. But, you know, being tax efficient in your retirement years is going to be very important because we've run into so many people that are paying more in taxes in their retirement year than in their retirement years than they did when they were working. And that's the one thing you don't want to do. You want to get that dude that's wearing that red, white, and blue clown outfit away from you as much as possible. And uh, the only way you can do that is to make sure that you're tax efficient now and you're in the vehicles that can help you today that will help you later on down the road. And the vehicle that we're talking about, Coase, is da, 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 da. Roth. Roth. R -O Did you say Roth like a dog? Roth. Roth. Roth row. <laughs> Roth row. If you don't have a Roth vehicle, it might be a Roth row moment for you. 
No, I'm roll, kidding. Roll. No, I mean, you know, the, th- the thing is um, a lot of people don't know, um, you know, what we mean by having a tax efficient strategy. And there's many one. I mean, there's many a strategy out there that that is tax efficient. So there isn't just one that uh, we promote, but there's one in particular that does apply to a lot of people that, that are working out there. You know, if you're working for an employee, um, it behooves you to check with your retirement plan administrator to see if your 401k plan or your 403b, whatever it is, may have a Roth provision, a Roth option in there. And uh, I, I don't know if we're trying to get into the dissecting of a Roth efficient strategy, but basically the Roth gives you an, a different option. Most people will take an option where you know they'll they'll amass a um, a large retirement account, only to find that uh, when they turn seventy and a half. Um, or when they're when they start taking at a younger age, that not only will they owe taxes, but at at, at some point they get old enough to where they're going to be required to take a certain amount of income out to pay taxes because you know Uncle Sam wants his share. And so if you don't want to live under that kind of uh, pressure um, as an old person, I certainly don't. Then there's a thing called a Roth, and it could be an IRA or it could be in a Roth. Or, I'm sorry, inside of a 401k. And uh, I mean, there's other tax-efficient strategies besides Roth as well. But it, bottom line is this. If you have a strategy where you build your retirement so that you, when you take the income from it as a retiree and you don't have to pay taxes on that, basically you own all that money to yourself, then you don't have to report that as well. You don't have to report that as income on your tax return. And guess what? It keeps your taxable income either uh, very, very low or non-existent, and it ke- helps you keep your Social Security tax-free as well. So anyway, did, I, I don't know if we need to dive more into that, Sam, or not. Uh, we've got uh, you know limited time here, but the oh. Roth strategy is something to be looking at. Um, and, oh, absolutely. Well. You want to definitely have your portfolio be tax-efficient, as tax-efficient as you possibly can. And, you know, I tell you, Coz, is that, you know, a lot of times what, what happens is I get it. A lot of people... They, they go through their, they go through life and, you know, looking, you know, 10, 15, 20 years down the road is really hard to fathom and visualize in some people's minds. And as a result, they don't necessarily have that plan. So when they look, they, they understand, they get it. You know, they, you talk to anybody about the Roth and they'll say, absolutely makes total sense. It's the smartest thing on the face of the planet. It's the best thing since sliced bread. But they don't necessarily execute upon it because there's no need, there's no demand, there's no there's no sense of urgency at this particular time, and so a lot of people are just clued into you know what what uh, the television saying and things of that nature as the economy, and uh, in many cases they're not even tuned into that. They're just tuned into everyday life, just going into work, coming back home, hanging out with their family, going to a baseball game with their kid, you know, and watching their you know coaching their 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 kids' uh, soccer game or whatever it might be that. That when it comes to tax efficiency and planning, it 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 typically happens, you know, right when they're about to leave, you know, and that's why you get a lot of people that uh, that contact, you know, uh, uh, financial experts out there. Typically, you know, a month to two weeks to one week to sometimes one day right before they're they're about to retire because that sense of urgency kicks in, you know. So yeah, it's the six things that could make you and will make you go. Hmm. I'm sure we can add four more to it. But for the most part, those are the six that we want to talk about that we have time for today. Fantastic, guys. As usual, I I like them. Um, If you had one thing that you wanted to tell the audience before we cut out for today, what would that be? 
Well, I mean, we said it before, um, you know, it can do all these things, but um, one of the things that will destroy pretty much everything that we talk about and that you, you know, you can do all the right things and build up a retirement portfolio, but if you have debt, you're, you're just basically um, sabotaging everything that you work hard for. So if you have debt, get out of it and figure out a way to stay out of it. And uh, yeah. the other, the other one is, you know, most, most listeners, the, the average population does not save enough money. So um, there, there's a few that do save a ton and it's, it's a mindset. Um, I try to teach, you know, children that um, the norm is to save, you know, I mean, I, I kind of brainwash people. I say, look, the norm is to save 50% of your income. Now, as adults, we know that that's very hard to do. But um, if you can't do 50%, then, you know, it should be realistic to be able to do 25 to 30% of your income should be safe for retirement. And you, yeah. will, you will, you know, it, it, again, it's just a mindset. If you just figure out how to get that done uh, between you and your spouse, you subscribe to that thinking and you stay out of debt. You cannot, I mean, you, you will succeed in having a very mm-hmm. secure retirement. And I, I like to leave people with, I know that, um, you know, that as of May 1st today uh, that we're recording this, I'd like to go ahead and let people know that because uh, I've had conversations with individuals currently right now. They're sitting on a bunch of cash because they're experiencing, they're thinking that the economy is not very good. But just being a student of the economy, the student of the markets, we may get a slight correction of 5 7%. It's nothing that we can trade. But for the most part, what's going to end up happening is, is uh, the Federal Reserve has done something very, very important. They did a complete about-face to what their plan was over the past year and a half, two years. Over the past year and a half, two years, the Federal Reserve, uh, Powell, and his and his group of uh, of merry men have uh, made it a point to raise interest rates to try to slow down the economy. They gave every reason why they should do it, and all of a sudden they did an about complete about face. And I think a lot of it had to do with December. But the fact is, is that now I'm starting to see PR campaigns. I'm starting to see a Federal Reserve PR campaign out there that is ultimately trying to invade our minds and uh, and to create this this element inside us that there is no inflation in the economy. And because there's no inflation in the economy, what ends up happening is that uh, it, they're going to be put in a position where they can keep rates where they are, if not reduce interest rates. And by keeping rates where they are or reducing interest rates, that should fuel the market. But the issue that we have, that I have personally, is that unless you haven't been driving around and unless you haven't been eating, it's hard to understand. There is inflation in the economy. Just look at mm-hmm. gas prices, look at food. You know, Coz has said it many times. I've said it a few times is that you go through a drive through the combo number one, whatever, wherever you go is going to be anywhere between nine, 10, 11 bucks, which was only about five, six dollars just a couple of years ago. So um, we're starting to see some inflation. We're starting to see a lot of inflation. The Fed's going to to participate and they're going to marry that inflation. They're going to support that inflation. And with inflation is a strong economy. And with a strong economy, people sitting on cash, you might miss another window of opportunity. And like I said, it's oftentimes a mantra just to go and stay away from trouble. But for the most part, you want to definitely be in a position where you are taking advantage uh, and and, and have a good diversification in, in your portfolio. So that's the one thing I wanted to go ahead and leave with. Perfect. Thank you guys so much for your time again today. And thank you all for listening to the Financial Liberty Project podcast with Sam Legaspi and Ko Sukamoto. If you have not subscribed to the podcast yet, please click the subscribe now button below. This way, when Sam and Ko's come out with a new podcast, it'll show up directly on your listening device. This makes it much easier to share these podcasts with your friends and family. Thanks again for listening today. For everyone at the Financial Liberty Project, this is Eric Johnson reminding you to live your best day every day. And we'll see you next time. 
it's that time again where the call of the open road makes its way. We hope good fortune finds you on your own personal road. And until next time, we thank you for listening to the Financial Liberty Podcast. Click the subscribe button below to be notified when new episodes become available.